0: Our scripture lesson this evening is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we read verses 17 through 24. We hope to begin this evening a month's long series on vocation, which is subtitled, A Guide for Young People Searching for Their Calling. I hope it will be helpful for young people, but I think we would also believe that whatever instructions could be specifically given to young people will be good for uh, older people, for people who work uh, both uh, outside of the home and inside of the home, so don't be alarmed if you don't count yourself to be a young person. The Lord will speak to us, I think, through this, and you'll help uh, interpret what's said from the pulpit for your young people as well. Uh, this, uh, The timing of the start of this series is also uh, deliberate as uh, this theme of vocation is very much a Reformation doctrine. That's not to say that the Reformers invented vocation, but that they recovered it. And so as we find ourselves on the brink of celebrating another Reformation Day, uh, this is very much in line with what we are thankful for, a recovery of the doctrine of vocation. One more thing I'll say before we read and jump into this series, first by way of uh, introduction and then the, the first theme, is that there is a lot to say on the topic of vocation. As, a, as why why probably will take months to, to to get through to even do our best at scratching the surface I mentioned that up front to say um, as as we're going through this series um, I I won't be able to say everything that needs to be said at one time and so sometimes after a sermon you may say yeah well that's true but what about and and we hope to get to that what about but I don't I don't, I don't think it would be helpful to try to offset everything that's said with that what about and not actually get get to the point. And so uh, do ask questions that you may have as we're working through this. If you're hoping that something will be covered, ask me. We can work it in, uh, Lord willing. Uh, but th- we, we do hope the Lord will bless this, this series on vocation. Uh, it's very important. John Calvin said it was the foundation of all things, the doctrine of vocation. So with that in mind, uh, let, let me read from Uh, verses 17 through 24 from 1 Corinthians 7, a text that almost all of the Reformers looked to for uh, drawing out this doctrine of vocation, particularly verse 20 and verse 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call Already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity." For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price; do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let uh, there let him remain with God. Amen. A guide for young people looking for their calling. That's what we're hoping to do over the coming months. Offer a guide. I don't know if this was your experience, but I think when many people are young, we tend not to mind being asked what we want to grow what we want to do when we grow up. I mean, when we're very young, when we're little. And our answers to that question are often creative and perfectly paired with our passions at the moment. So, I want to be an artist, or I want to be an athlete, or I want to be an animal groomer, or whatever it might be. When young, our ambitions have not yet met obstacles. We imagine that we will surely end up doing something we love when we're very little. In our teen years, however, and beyond, questions about our future become harder. Our interests change rapidly. We no longer want to be a pet groomer, now it's something else. We might begin also to uh, doubt our abilities. The, The reality begins to sink in. Our future might not align with our dreams. At least that was my experience As a teenager, I not only wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life, I didn't even know the questions to begin asking. I had no idea how to start. I basically knew that I needed a job and that I didn't want to do something I hated. Now, I recognize that many young people, probably many young people here, are more thoughtful than I was at the time. But I noticed that even the most hyper-focused people that I knew when I was in high school did not all end up doing what they had hoped to do. Some of my middle-aged peers are still wondering, what will I do when I grow up? It's hard to figure out what to do with your life. For others, even the question of meaningful work induces anxiety. What have I done with my life? is a common question that older adults ask. Our work, as we recognize very quickly, has the potential to be either satisfying or meaningless. Interestingly, uh, Solomon entertains the possibility of both in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 24 and verse 11. But it has the potential to go either way, doesn't it? Some people approach... All of life, including work, with a sense of mission. You know these kinds of people. Others of us drift from task to task, not really sure where we should go. Uh, Some people excel at work. Others do only the bare minimum. Some people properly balance work and family and other obligations. Others are either enslaved to their jobs or don't work well enough to even care for their own. There's so many pitfalls when it comes to the question, what can I do with my life? How can we figure out what we are supposed to do and do it well? Those are hard questions, hard questions for young people right now. The key to a well-balanced life is the Christian doctrine of vocation. So all of the answers that we might wrestle with as young people or older people about what will I do with my life, we find the answers in the doctrine of vocation or calling. Vocation uh, is simply the Latinized version of the word calling. So we'll use those terms largely interchangeably in this series. Believers have been called by God out of the world and into his service. All right, so that's the first clue about calling. We're called out of the world into God's service. Listen to Romans eight twenty eight, To those who are called according to his purpose, words we know well, God also provides a place and the required gifts to fulfill his purposes in the world. That's vocation. Here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians two ten: We are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So our unique opportunities to do God's will form our vocations, our callings. Now, in this series, as I envision it at this point, we want to try to understand and apply vocations in three movements. First, we hope to ponder the doctrine of vocation, to, to, to think about what it is. What is vocation? What does Scripture teach about work? And what is the relationship between the special calling of grace and our ordinary callings in the world? So the first part of the series, pondering. Second, we hope to study how to prepare for vocational living. We don't want to stay at the, sort of the, the, the knowledge part or the theory part of it. We want to think about preparing. We want to think through what people of God at most any stage of life can do to become better qualified to glorify and enjoy God in the station that he leads us into. Third, we hope to explore how to practice vocation. What biblical disciplines can help us succeed at work and in the home? And how does our work life relate to the rest of who we are? So ponder, prepare, and practice. Those are sort of, That's sort of the roadmap of where we hope to go with this series. Let's begin pondering the idea of vocation or calling by asking the basic question, what is vocation? And I want to do that in two ways. First of all, uh, considering the basic idea of vocation, and then second, the three main ingredients to vocational living. So what is the basic idea of vocation? John Calvin taught that calling, or its Latin equivalent vocation, is as simple as knowing what God wants us to do and doing it in the place that he has appointed us to live. So knowing what God wants and putting into practice where we are. Listen to Calvin. He says, The Lord bids each one of us in all life's actions to look to his calling. By calling, Calvin means that God has appointed duties for every man in his particular way of life. Each individual has his own kind of living assigned to him by the Lord as a sort of sentry post like a post that a sentry would have to stand at and defend. You have your place, your post to to defend so that, Calvin says, he may not heedlessly wander about throughout life. You have a place in which God is calling you to work. This calling from the Lord, Calvin says, is in in everything the beginning and foundation of well-doing. We have to know what we're called to do and do it in the place that we're called. And we need to understand, as we tie this into Reformation Day, this was a fresh idea in Calvin's day. Not a new idea, but, in the, but fresh in the sense that in medieval Christians thought, because it was taught by the church, that only church workers had a vocation, a calling, that, they were, that only church workers were made for something, to do for God. Everyone else was simply performing a job. Uh, Joel Beakey and Mark Jones in their book on the Puritans put it this way, devotion at, the, at that time was largely confined by medieval Catholicism, medieval Catholicism to the monastery. The reformers released it into the marketplace. It's a wonderful thought and, and, and that's, that's a reality. Uh, That is exactly, he's exactly right. They believed, the reformers believed that every Christian has a special role in this world as priest and prophet and king. We sometimes think of the priesthood of all believers. It means every one of us has a calling. We draw that, don't we, from Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 31, 32, sorry. So, the, so we are called in whatever station we enter into as priests and prophets and kings unto God. Therefore, Christians have a vocation, a divine calling. And, and we need to recover this teaching today, especially as many modern factors seem to threaten the reality of vocation. Think of secularism for example, that tries to minimize meaningful spirituality, that tries to say all of life is secular and tries to squeeze out religion from our lives. Or think of industrialization and computerization, which challenge the human element of our work. Some of us feel like we're just part of a big machine doing our little bit. How is that a calling, we may wonder? Or globalization, which makes it hard to know how my earnest occupational contributions can remain untainted from more sinister motives. I do my job, but someone is using my job to do something bad somewhere. Our our callings are so interconnected today that we may wonder, how can I even have a calling? But because vocation is biblical, not an invention of the reformers, it can also help us today. The term calling, you should know, uh, almost always refers in Scripture to God's uh, special call to faith and the Spirit's working of that faith uh, in our lives or the life of faith. And so in one sense, what, what we're going to be studying, uh, calling or vocation in terms of like the, the, the life that we live is really just a part although a very large part of the calling by God to be a Christian. So God calls us out of the world, calls us to be Christians, works faith in our life, and then calls us to take that new life into the world. And so you could say this, our master vocation for every one of us is tied to our, the, the calling unto new life. It's to love the Lord supremely, to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the calling of every one of us. We do this at home, at church, at work, and in the public square. And so vocation is how we love God and love others with the skills that God has given to us, especially in the new birth. Your vocation is the unique way in which God has chosen you to fit into his great plan of providence and ultimately the salvation of the church and the restoring of all things. Um, In other words, we, we need the special calling of the Holy Spirit in order to live out our general callings in the world. Why? Because prior to bending the knee to Christ, many people lack that sense of purpose which can only be found in vital union with God. Well, we could say um, many people lack it. In fact, everybody prior to bending the knee to Christ really lacks the right sense of purpose. In other words, there's a connection between what is known as God's effectual call and his call to a vocation. And here it is. When God effectually calls by way of regeneration a man or woman, by changing their heart, he also gives them a life calling. He enlists them in his service. And so, for example, uh, in Luke chapter 3, people who had been converted by the gospel came to John the Baptist and said, how should we live now? And what John says is that after conversion, just for example, tax collectors and soldiers do their work now, the same job, but now with a different master and with different motives, with different fruit flowing from that job. That's their vocation. Jesus doesn't say, you tax collectors and you soldiers, go out and do something more spiritual now that you become Christians. He says, do your job to the glory of God. They're now owned, we're now owned by God and work for his glory. And so calling in scripture usually has to do with our call to faith. But in at least one place, and perhaps only in one place, the Apostle Paul broadens the sense of the Christian calling. And that's the place that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. Here, Paul broadens the sense of the Christian calling, tying it to the effectual call in regeneration. Listen to verse 17 again. Paul here exhorts every believer to lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. And to which God has called him. So you hear that word, calling, uh, which we also will use synonymously in the concept of vocation. Here we don't have calling so much tied to the effectual call, the rebirth from death to life. Now we're called to a place, to a way of spending our time. Paul gives the example of a bondservant who becomes a Christian through the effectual call, the gift of regeneration. And what Paul says here, and this is so wonderful, and he couldn't have chosen a better station, a better example to make this point. He says, even in such a lowly station as a bondservant, as a slave, Paul says... A Christian is free to serve the Lord. Slaves? And and now, of course, Paul is speaking to that class of persons that made up more than 50% of the Roman Empire of his day. He's saying, slaves, you've been called by God to serve him in, in that capacity. Now, if you have a chance to become free, do it. We'll get to that in a later sermon. But You're free to serve the Lord. Martin Luther even translated 1 Corinthians 7.20 like this, let everyone stay in the vocation in which he is called. So we have in which he is called, there's the effectual call, and the vocation is the place, the location that God has given to us to serve. Calvin understood this passage in the same way. It describes the vocations of tailors and merchants. He gives just two examples, but he could have given countless examples. Paul's point is that, as Charles Hodge said, the gospel is just as well-suited to men in one vocation as in another. Now, we'll qualify that in a moment. But you can live out the gospel call on your life in any location, in any occupation, in any setting, at any, at any part of your life, any phase of your life, young, old, male, female, slave or free. In other words, to, to, to go back to the idea of, of Roman Catholic concept of calling, that you're only called if you're a church worker, what Luther and Calvin are saying here is that one surely does not have to become a minister to have a calling. In fact, it is essential that not everyone become a minister, right? It would be crazy if everybody became a pastor. Uh, how would anything happen? How would anything get done if there were only pastors? If everybody wanted to be in professional ministry, we, the world would stop functioning. The Lord calls his people in all walks of life, to follow him. He wants them to be Christian fathers and mothers, Christian husbands and wives, Christian employers and employees. Each one should fill the role that God has assigned. In a sense, then, we are all religious workers because all of our actions are expressions of our incurably religious hearts. Calvin is famous for saying, we can't not be religious. We live and move and have our being, Paul says, in God. If we live and move and have our being in God, then everything that we do is religious. We can do nothing that is truly religious or non-religious. Religious. And so so the, the point here, specifically in 1 Corinthians 7, from which we can uh, elaborate, is that even bondservants, even slaves, even those who have almost no autonomy in decision-making in their work, who didn't choose their work and, and feel like they have to slave away day after day. Even bond servants can work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, as Scripture puts it. Paul reminds servants that they are not uh, serving a man in their service. They are ultimately serving the Lord Christ. Colossians 3, 22 and 24. You can serve Christ as a bondservant, as a slave. There's no reason, in other words, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, there's no reason for someone doing valid work to change professions when they become a Christian. They can serve God in whatever they are, wherever they are when they're called to faith. That's what Paul is saying to the Christian readers. Of his day, whatever you do, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 10:31, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And so the Christian doctrine of vocation dignifies all valid enterprises. I say enterprises because you don't want to even narrow it to, to jobs. I mean, we do volunteer work. We we serve in the home and outside of the home. All valid enterprises, the doctrine of vocation dignifies. All work is sacred, someone has written, when devoted to the glory of God. And so we need to understand this. Going to work doesn't take you away from participation in the mission of God. Leaving this church building doesn't take you away from participation in the mission of God. The, the, the workplace or the, your sphere in which you're called to, to be is the place where you spend most of your time in the mission of God. So sometimes in the church we have it turned upside down and we say, well, when we're doing church-type work, we're serving the Lord, and surely that's part of our lives. But if that's the case, most of us in this room serve the Lord only a very little bit. It's just not, it's not how it is, is it? We serve the Lord in, in whatever we do. The Lord gives us that opportunity. The same is true for work in the family, for unpaid labor, for fulfilling civic responsibilities and, and other occupations. So that's just a glimpse at the, the basic idea of vocation. God calls his people sovereignly by, and, and works faith by the Holy Spirit, drawing people out of the world dispositionally but keeps us in the world vocationally. Stay where you are, Paul says to his readers, and bring the fruit of, the, of what I'm doing in your life to bear in the broader world. Now, I want to move to that second question. What are the ingredients of a vocation? And at least three things are necessary to enjoy vocation, a true calling from God. And we'll go through them briefly, and we'll elaborate these on these in different ways in the series uh, ahead uh, but three things are necessary to actually um, have the, uh, t- to live vocationally. Number one, we need a right perspective. A right perspective. Uh, writer and essayist Dorothy Sayers put it this way, the outcome of our work will be decided by our religious outlook. The outcome of our work will be decided by our religious outlook as we are, So we make. As we are, so we make. Your outlook, your perspective will determine how you work. So it's essential to have a proper perspective to live out a calling. In other words, there's a difference between how a believer and an unbeliever approach their varied responsibilities. Without trusting in God, we use work or other opportunities to make a name for ourselves. Have you ever noticed how the the workers, the builders in Genesis 11, uh, worked hard and diligently, but they did it to make a name for themselves. They built a tremendous tower, and not only was it a waste of their time, it was an abomination in God's sight. Because their perspective was wrong. They were working to build a name for themselves, to distance themselves from God. So many people work that way still today. Or, think of it this way, if if we have the wrong perspective, we can expect work to give us the kind of satisfaction that we can only find in Christ, and many people do. We could see our jobs simply as a way to get money. But faith in God and obedience to his word can transform any valid work into worship. So, perspective is vital. And that means that instead of following our passions into what we might consider ideal work, Christians, wherever they are, prioritize faith, hope, and love. Bring those with you wherever you go. Faith, hope, and love. You'll be doing the Lord's work. Now, we'll qualify that also in a moment. But you you can please the Lord even in a role that is miles away from your childhood dreams and your current aspirations if you bring faith, hope, and love into that place. In these roles, we cheerfully live out our responsibilities before God no matter the specifics, no matter the pay, no matter whether we're appreciated at work, no matter if it corresponds exactly to what we feel like we should be doing. That's important, as we'll consider mostly next time, because not all work is intrinsically satisfying. Everybody in this room knows that. Not all work is intrinsically satisfying. A lot of what we do is mundane. It feels unfruitful. And all work has its challenges, but a vocational outlook can help us transcend the liabilities of working in a fallen world. Work doesn't have to be inherently satisfying in order to uh, live it for the glory of God. The Heidelberg Catechism, I think, is helpful here. Question 91 asks this, But what are good works? Now, we normally think about that uh, maybe more piously, but really the question is, what is good work? What does it mean to work well? And part of the answer emphasizes the perspective of the worker. The answer is this, only those works are good, which are done out of true faith and for God's glory. And so what the Catechism is saying is that the various arenas of our life, our work, our family, our recreation, whatever we do, must be governed by trust in God, faith, and an interest in his glory, our goal. One writer said this, Whatever then someone's station may be, faith transforms it into a vocation. Everyone in the world has a station. But faith transforms that station, that sentry post at which you're you're called to, to sit or stand. Faith transforms that into a vocation, your perspective that God works in you. And so Dorothy Sayers can say this, a vocationally minded person sees work not primarily as a thing one does to live, but as a thing one lives to do. So, you need a right perspective, which only a Christian can have, one who's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Second, you need a valid enterprise. The best perspective in the world can't transform an invalid enterprise. In other words, we can glorify God in whatever we do so long as we are undertaking noble purposes. uh, John Calvin said this, that... Um, God acknowledges as vocations only lawful modes of life which have God as their approver and author. Or as the Catechism puts it again, going back to question and answer 91, good works must conform to God's law in, in the actual thing that we're doing. It must be a lawful enterprise. So, To put it bluntly, Christians cannot glorify God by bringing a godly attitude to an evil job. There are evil jobs. There are jobs that you as a Christian cannot call a vocation. I'm going to be somewhat reluctant to identify those jobs, uh, but you have to think through them. We have to think through them together. I will name some, but it doesn't matter how godly your attitude is. It doesn't help it doesn't sanctify an evil job. To go back to Genesis 11, the builders of the Tower of Babel worked heartily; they were diligent. They brought a they brought a uh, an attitude even of at least hard work. But they lacked a valid calling because the project itself displeased God. In fact, the more skillful their The the execution of their trade, the more ungodly they were being, because they were working on an invalid project. And so you need a valid enterprise. And so Dorothy Sayers said, "This we should ask of an enterprise: not will it pay, but is it good?" Now we're going to get to will it pay. That is an important question that that we must ask. That question. We need to be practical in our vocations, but that's the only question we're asking. Will it pay? Will it make me rich? Will I be able to provide it for my family in this way? That's the wrong, that may be a wrong vocation. Is it good? So what tests can we apply to discover whether a job is good? Let me touch on these. We'll get to them more later. But uh, Dan Doriani has written a, a, a really good book on work, uh, professor at Covenant College, Um, And he helps us in this way. He says, work is good first if it is moral, if it builds character, if it achieves good goals, if it pleases God, if it conforms to the proper structures of his world, and if it fits his vision of the good. Maybe to simplify, we could say this. a, a, A job is worthy of our efforts if it harmonizes with God's original mandate that humans steward the earth in submission to him. Now, I know that's a little bit vague, but if, if we cannot do our job as stewards, working under that mandate given in Genesis 1, verse 28, then the job isn't good, no matter how well you do it. You have to find a good job. So you, you, you can't glorify God as a loan shark or as a drug dealer or as a pornographer, or as a thief. Now, I'm being pretty cautious here in identifying bad jobs. There are many other jobs at which you can't glorify God. But the point simply is, it's not about applying your best work flowing from a right attitude if, you're, if, if the project is poor, if it doesn't glor- if it can't glorify God. If a job passes these standards, it qualifies as a vocation. Now, this is very important. It does, this doesn't mean that every job will feel like a calling. Few people washing dishes in a low-quality restaurant could be persuaded to believe that they were born for this. You know, if you were just, I mean, you, you were cut out for this. God made you for this. That's, hard, that's a hard sell. It's not going to feel like a vocation. But, but while such a stepping stone job may not be your final career, it may be the place, and I would say it, it, it is for now the place where you will live out your Christianity. So in a sense, even though it doesn't feel like a vocation, it doesn't feel like a calling, it doesn't feel like I've been I was born for this, it is your sentry post. It is that place that God has put you right now. Vocational living, then, doesn't mean demanding that work check all the boxes, especially early in our working life. And yet, with with a biblically informed conscience, we must truly believe in the work that we're doing. At some level, we must believe in it. After all, Paul says in R- uh, Romans 14, 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you don't believe in this, uh, then you can't do it, because if, for you it would be a sin. So... A right perspective, a valid enterprise. Third, faithful work. You have to work faithfully. You have to bring your right attitude to a job that can be done for God's glory and do it well. Vocational living then not only teaches us why we work and where to work, but how to work. Again, Dorothy Sayers sums up vocation as the calling of people made in God's image to make things as God makes them for the sake of doing well a thing that is worth doing. Find a thing that's worth doing, do it well. Kingdom work also means not only doing quality work, but doing loving work. To put it differently, we're not only concerned about putting out a quality product or rending excellent service, we must use our calling to actually love our neighbor. And so Puritan uh, William Perkins wrote this, that a person's vocation calls him to become a servant to his brother in all the duties of love. So it's not just about being an excellent craftsman or offering excellent service. It's about doing it in love. So work for the Christian is not about how we get ahead, it's how we put others before our own interests, Philippians 2, verse 4. A vocation mindset calls Christians to disrupt a culture of self-interest with sacrificial, self-giving love by leveraging skills and resources in partnership with others for God's glory and for the good of all. To summarize, true... Truly good work uses the right means, has godly motivations, and pursues beneficial goals. Good work is both lawful and helpful to humanity. And so vocation is just the doctrine that we need right now to elevate work to its rightful place as designed by God. It was needed in the 16th century. It's needed right now. And, and this is true for a number of reasons. Let me wrap up with these encouragements to you to uh, help us uh, stay with this series to believe that God has something good for us in this theme. Uh, a few things I want to just say to encourage you. First of all, vocational living is clarifying. It's clarifying. And I know that as a young person, I needed clarity. I did not know even the questions to ask about how to spend my life. It's clarifying for this reason. It tells us, it tells me, as a young person or as an older person, I must work. That's pretty simple. I don't know exactly what God has planned for me, but I will be faithful with what the Lord gives me. That's very clarifying. More than that, though, vocational living is invigorating it says to me that I can truly work for God no matter what I do, no matter what my particular calling, no matter whether, whether I love my job or not, no matter whether my boss is, is, uh, you know, loves us as workers or not, whether I feed cows as a farmer or feed God's people as a pastor, I can do the Lord's work and everything in between, you might say. Because I work for God and my neighbor, I also must work heartily, offering my very best. That's invigorating. Of course, that doesn't mean that I look to my work for my value. Some people work hard in order to find out who they are in order to try to give a meaning to themselves. I have that value already in God's love, which I receive through the gospel. We won't be, we, we will be touch, uh, talking about the gospel, but we understand this whole topic of vocational living comes um, logically after we've experienced the grace of God. This is not how we gain favor with God. This is how we live out our favor with God. And so, thirdly, then, vocation is also liberating. In our own different ways, one writer said, we are responsible for love's sake and for the way the world is and ought to be. Now, that doesn't sound liberating. That sounds, that sounds like the stakes are high, and they are. But, but someone else, uh, I think, takes that thought and, and brings it to a right conclusion. By saying this, each of us has a sphere of influence and a specific skill set that God strategically uses to transform the world. We aren't responsible for the world. We are responsible for the pieces that God has given to us. That's liberating. Vocation is, is the way that God says, I'm going to change the world through the people of God. Not perfectly, we're going to resolve that, God says, uh, uh, at the last day when I come and transform everything. But the kingdom of God is going to make a mark on this world. You're responsible for the the good of the world, but you're just one part of that. So you're responsible just for the parts that God has given to you, and you take that little place, that little plot of land, like, like Adam was given in the garden, where God said, cultivate this land, Adam. Adam couldn't have dreamed how much land lie beyond the bounds of Mesopotamia and Adam's thinking to himself, I, I have to cultivate all this land? God says, no, just your, just your little place. And there are others who will do the rest of it. And that's what we are as the church. We come together, we do the different things that God has called us to do with a right outlook, in a, in a good place and with excellent work and the Lord will use that to do wonderful things in the church and in the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that for this doctrine that you have embedded in your word for our benefit and for the benefit of the world. Please help us as we study these things and as we strive to especially help young people figure out what it is that they should do in this world for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.